My name is uh, David Goodman. I'm the Academic Director of the China Studies Centre. We're very pleased to welcome you to a uh, public lecture tonight, uh, organised by Sydney Ideas and by the China Studies Centre. The star turn tonight is a genuine star turn. Jeremy Barme, Professor Barme from ANU, Australian National University, who uh, is without uh, qualification Australia's leading China scholar. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have him here. I've been trying to get him to come and speak at the University of Sydney for a while, and uh, we've managed at long last to do it. Uh, I first heard of Jeremy when I was a young man, so you can tell how long ago that was. Wandering around China, people in those days used to think that all foreigners look alike, and so people used to come up to me and say, are you Bai, bai Jian Mei? And I would say, no, who's he? And then later on I found out who he was. Well, I don't think we look like, very much like each other. Um, I have uh, these days slightly more hair than you. <laughs> but in those days we didn't, it was the other way around. Anyhow, it's really a great pleasure uh, to have Jeremy here. He's going to speak for a period of time, show some films, talk about uh, China, Chinese culture, and uh, then there'll be a period for questions. When uh, you come to ask questions, please do use the microphones. Uh, the uh, event tonight is being recorded uh, for uh, posterity and other people as well by the University of Sydney, and so uh, everything has to be recorded. And uh, I think that's all I need to say. Just, just check with Meredith. Okay, over to Jeremy. Thank you very much. David, thank you so much. It's um, a great pleasure to be here. And we have discussed for many months when I would come up. And again, thank you so much for this invitation. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, Meredith, who's in charge of the AV um, system tonight, and to Ping for her kind work and her tolerance of me, because I took so long to provide an ab abstract for this talk. And also to my colleague, Nora, Nora Chang in Boston, who did put the, together the video clips for me. For me. Um, I'll start with one video clip and then go on from here. The topic today is telling Chinese stories, and I hope that over time it will become obvious why I chose that topic. Meredith, could I have the first clip, please? Events do not deliver their meanings to us. They are always interpreted. On the morning of June 5th, there was a moment that would come to symbolize the hope and the tragedy of those spring days. He disappeared into the crowd afterwards, and no one knows where he is now. No one is even certain of his name. But for the millions who saw this scene all over the world, its meaning was clear. Here was human hope and courage, challenging the remorseless machinery of state power. The Chinese government interpreted this scene just as simply, but differently. In the days after the end of the protest at Tiananmen, large numbers of people were arrested all over China. 
在收音机里就听到了。I heard the government's most wanted list on the radio. 一开始我还以为只有学生。At first it seemed only students were on the list, but I finally heard my own name. 就听到了我的名字，我就特别担心。I couldn't stand the humiliation of being hunted down by the police. 唯一的一条路上。I wanted to maintain as much dignity as possible while facing the inevitable. 我说我自己。So I decided to go to the police on my own. I told the police, I've come here because you've got your facts wrong. I don't know if it's deliberate or because you don't understand what really happened. Since I was involved, I feel it's my duty to straighten you out. When individuals stand up to power, they bring to the encounter the lessons that power has taught them and the harm it has done them. Merely to stand up does not free us from these things. Behind every gesture of hope and courage lies a life, a society, a history. That is a clip from a film called The Gate of Heavenly Peace. I was the, the writer of that narration. Um, and it shows a very paradigmatic, iconic moment um, in 1989 that relates very much to what I want to say today. For some, that moment, the, the tank boy, or the tank man as he's called, represents a split in the understanding of and appreciation of contemporary China. China's open door and reform policies were initiated by the Chinese Communist Party in December 1978. They disavowed the politics of the Cultural Revolution era, a period that began informally in 1964 with the purge of what were called those in power taking the capitalist road in the countryside. For many observers and commentators, the formal disavowal of radical Maoism in the early 1980s and the gradual introduction of economic reforms that undid much of the socialized economy of China presaged more dramatic change. In China, the post-78 new era, the Xin Shiqi, as it was called, was hailed as a second liberation, the Fang, as significant indeed as the first liberation, or Fang of 1949. For others, it brought China back into world history, albeit a history of global capital, rather than a global revolutionary history that the party had been involved in since its founding in 1921. The 1980s were a unique period in modern Chinese history, recalling for some the Enlightenment period of the May 4th era, that dates from 1917 to 1927. For others, it was akin to the Nanking decade of 1927 to 39. The reality was that in the 1980s, China experienced for the first time in nearly four decades economic, cultural, and social change that for many would inevitably lead to major political renovation, if not an end to one-party rule, and indeed the draconian control of the Chinese media itself. Agitation for change took various guises, the most famous and clamorous being a nationwide protest movement sparked by the death of the former party general secretary, Hu Yabang, in mid-April 1989. Those protests in Tiananmen Square and in public spaces in dozens of other Chinese cities gave voice to a range of inchoate frustrations. There were demands for greater freedoms, calls for an open press, demands for an end to corruption and nepotism, opposition indeed to China's involvement with the world economy, in short, those protests challenged the party's monopoly on power and its style of rule. In retrospect, in particular, following the dismemberment of the Eastern Bloc and the collapse of the Soviet Union, China's 1989 protest movement seems like a lost opportunity for the country to become a modern, progressive, westernized state, 
to fulfill supposedly the promise of prosperity, democracy, and pluralism that had first been envisaged by the 1911 revolution, that revolution that had brought an end to a millennia, to millennia of dynastic rule. For Chinese leaders, however, under Deng Xiaoping, and for the party propaganda apparatus, 1989 was something else entirely. The protests were neither spontaneous nor were they patriotic. They were part of a canny plot hatched by local malcontents and inimical global forces, in particular the Americans. The struggle of 1989 was in fact a continuation of the anti-imperialist and anti-colonial struggle that China had been embroiled in, in fact, since the First Opium War of 1840, a struggle that had only intensified with the founding of the People's Republic of China in 1949. The former Communist Party chairman Mao Zedong had clearly identified the nature of that struggle, the struggle against Western domination and exploitation, 30 years before 1989. Speaking to party leaders in the southern city of Hangzhou in 1959, he had warned that there was a long-term American-led international capitalist plot aimed at both the Soviet Union and at China. It was a strategy that employed economics, the media, culture and ideas to corrupt socialism. It was a plot to see countries like China transformed over time into liberal market, demo market democracies. Through a gradual process of social, economic and political change, the Americans and their allies hoped that China would go through what was called a peaceful evolution to become a planned Western-style state. Shortly after 4th of June 1989, from which those images are taken from the 5th of June, Deng Xiaoping reiterated Mao Zedong's warning about peaceful evolution. He declared that people had been misled by intellectuals and agents into protesting against the government and the party. Political education had slackened off during the boom years of the 1980s, and the party had been too soft on arrant ideas and activists. It was now necessary to silence these dangerous liberal elements and to re-educate the country, to teach people Chinese history, teach them about China's unique situation and the challenges that it faced in its long search for wealth and power. That moment on Chang'an Avenue to the west of Tiananmen Square, to the east of Tiananmen Square, sorry, when that unnamed, unnamed young man confronted the armed might of the PLA has become an iconic image that represents a sole voice of protest against state repression. Far beyond that, it is an image that marks a stark split in contemporary understandings of the China story. Tell a story, Jiang Gu It's a simple request. It was a request that was also a plea during the waning years of the Cultural Revolution in the early 1970s onwards, it was also a common prompt for people anxious to exchange information, tales, rumours and gossip. That was in the declining years of Mao's rule. Of course, we see a similar phenomenon occurring now with the exchange of Zheng Ziaoyan political gossip today. Back then, each request for the recounting of an individual story, for the surreptitious telling of a private tale, or for the sharing of an anecdote that would entertain or inform, every account that might elicit a sympathetic response resulting from shared experience, all of the reminiscences of sufferings in the Cultural Revolution or lucky escapes, tinged with a bitter understanding of the absurdist tragedies that had touched nearly every family in China. In fact, any description of life as lived outside the realm of relentless public performance or away from collective surveillance was itself in breach of the greater story, the singular narrative of the nation's life as told by the Chinese Communist Party itself. 
In the 1970s, the reappearance of the individual and the endless variety of life in China, first behind closed doors through furtive exchanges about personal histories, and then in a more open and joyful atmosphere of celebration at the end of an era of totalitarian control, and finally, although always fitfully in the mass media itself, was part of the unravelling of the story that the Communist Party told itself, one that, through its hold over the nation, it constantly reiterated to people throughout China and indeed the world. During the heyday of state socialism, the individual story was submerged by a collective tale of capital H history, something writ large. In it, the complex skein of personal lives was reduced to undifferentiated stereotypes and formulaic accounts. Living at the western extreme of the socialist world at the time, the Czech writer and dissident Václav Havel observed how this kind of singular story in socialist, state socialist cultures came to silence all others. He said, in that era of state socialism, the uniqueness of the human creature became a mere embellishment on the laws of history, and the tension and thrill inherent in real events were dismissed as accidental and so unworthy of the attention of scholarship. History itself became boredom. After a period in the 1980s when stories in China proliferated, and following the 4th of June, the party state launched a campaign in the wake of that nationwide protest movement to tell its story once more. Aimed in particular at instilling a sense of patriotic duty and mission among the nation's misguided youth, this movement identified sites around the country that were part of a map of patriotic education. TV stations ran old revolutionary and war movies, revived patriotic and pro-party songs were sung, and they were led by the party general secretary of the time, Jiang Zemin, who enjoined the nation in particular to sing the party anthem. Without the Communist Party, there would be no new China. It was a red song, a hunger, and a hunger campaign two decades before Bo Lai, the former party secretary of Chongqing, who recently employed patriotic and pro-party songs in his own efforts to forge his own political future. The patriotic education movement, was focused on educating people about what's called China's unique national conditions. In Chinese, the word is guoqing. You simply don't understand China's unique national conditions. This common refrain is chimed with certainty and stridency by average citizens, justice by leaders of the party state when they address foreigners. Unless you see you appreciate and accept unequivocally China's guoqing, unique national conditions, you betray yourself as lacking insight into and empathy with the mysteries of that country's tortured history and complex present realities. The concept of guoqing first appeared in the late Qing period, early last century. You will all be familiar with the refrain made popular by the post-4th of June campaign. Talk of guoqing allows for a particular kind of Chinese exceptionalism. Of course, America, Australia, we all have our exceptionalisms, but we're talking about the guoqing of China today. People employ it whether they are rejecting well-intentioned observations on social mores or when staring down the incredulity of outsiders confronted by egregious political or mercantile behavior, or indeed facing the rather often bizarre Chinese media. Not only can the criticism of outsiders be deflected in this fashion, you don't get it, you don't understand what our watching is, even those with intimate ties to the country, 
Chinese people in and outside of China are frequently derided and chided for failing to appreciate China's watching. Confucius Institutes, indeed, have been established in recent years in part to help educate the, wor the world about China's watching as legislated by the Chinese authorities and Ministry of Education. Guoqing is hard to define at the best of times, but it includes an official menu, a repertoire of factoids and attitudes. I'll just share a few very quick ones with you. China has an unbroken recorded history of 5,000 years. Quite. It also has always been a multi-ethnic nation incorporating peoples as varied as the Han, Tibetans, Uyghurs, and Mongols, and Dai. Historical necessity and contemporary realities determine that only the unified leadership of the Chinese Communist Party can maintain stability and legality in China and enable China to pursue a unique path to modernity that will ensure national independence, economic prosperity, and wealth for all. Guoqing theory also includes such nebulous claims that there is a particular Chinese way of doing things, that Chinese people have a special purchase on the world of the spirit, something attested to by its ancient culture and arts, and that although China is a global culture, only Chinese can really understand it. Those of you familiar with Japan will know that there's a similar set of ideas called Nihonjinrong that in fact helped inspire a hundred years ago the discussion of watching in China. Watching in Japanese is koktai. Saturating textbooks, films, TV programs, and the news media, watching awareness has become part of the very fabric of contemporary Chinese life and thought. The success of the two-decade-long watching campaign is nowhere more evident than in the patriotic and often splenetic outpourings common on the Chinese-language internet. The 1990s re-education campaign built on efforts launched in the late 70s to emphasize the spiritual civilization of China. This is a civilization that was thought to have been imperiled by the nihilism and anarchy of the Cultural Revolution period. In 1979, as the party prepared for the 30th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic on the 1st of October that year, Ye Jianying, the Master of Defense, the Minister of, Minister of Defense, and some say the man behind the arrest of the Gang of Four, declared that a revolutionary weary society, scarred by years of relentless political campaigns, crises and conflict, needed now to pursue not only economic reform and material welfare, but to pay attention to building a spiritual civilization, Jingshen Wenming. What started as a speech in 1979 and a concern was in the following years codified into a formal party program, one aimed at building a Chinese spiritual civilization that was based on the party's understanding of the nature of China, its history, and its particularities. Interestingly, over half a century before Ye Jianying made his speech in 1979, the famous late Qing thinker and historian Liang Qichao had first spoken of the need for China to embrace a modern worldview, one that he said had to include both material culture, that is, human instruments and general conditions of existence, as well as jingshen wenming, spiritual culture, that is, language, ethics, politics, religion, aesthetics, and scholarship. Those things that he said constitute the valuable accumulation created by the energy of the human mind. Liang Qichao was initially an advisor to the Guangxu Emperor, whose attempts to reform the Qing dynasty and the Qing dynasty government in 1898 had failed. Later, Liang Qichao became a famous monarchist reformer, agitator, publisher, and writer. 
He was one of the first Chinese thinkers to argue that modern style history writing was intimately bound up with the creation of a modern country. Having been forced into exile following the failed 1898 reforms, Liang travelled to raise money and awareness about China's dire predicament. In 1900 and 1901, Liang visited and stayed in Australia. It was at a unique moment in this country's history. It was the year of Australia's federation. Liang even attended a gala function here in Sydney at the Sydney Town Hall on the 12th of January, January 1901. It was held to celebrate the creation of the Commonwealth of Australia. The first Prime Minister, the guy whose name most people forget, um, of this nation, Edmund Barton, was also present. It was a foundational period for this country, but it was also one linked profoundly with the story of the Chinese in Australia and Australia's engagement with China. You see, as my colleague Gloria Davies has noted in a long study of Liang Qichao's period in Australia, the formation of the Australian Federation in 1901 introduced further restrictions to Chinese migration, which are thought to be a big racial problem for Australia. And the Immigration Restriction Act became the first piece of legislation to be passed by the new federal parliament in December of 1901. That act created what would later be known as White Australia. <clears throat> While Australia pursued whiteness, Liang Qichao and thinkers like him were trying to imagine an expansive and progressive future of, of China for China that was global and open to the rest of the world, in particular by reconsidering its past as something shared by a joint, join, uh, engaged with a, join, a shared humanity. During his time in Australia, Liang Qichao um, noticed that Australians were much focused on China, not only because of race issues, but also no, part, no small part due to the fact that an Australian, the former British citizen, now an Australian, a man by the name of George E. Morrison, who lived in Beijing, was reporting for the London Times and reported in particular on what was then the most calamitous and newsworthy of all stories, and that is the Boxer Rebellion in Beijing a rebellion that led to a foreign invasion of Beijing and led to the imperial court fleeing from Beijing and finding um, refuge in far western Xi'an while the boxers were repressed and the protracted peace negotiations, very punitive negotiations for China, uh, continued in the capital. For his part, Liang Qichao continued to raise funds for political activities and reform in China. He was interested in trade, for he thought that only through trade, manufacture and wealth generation could China really become a modern and strong country. Like so many others, he saw economic strength as being the path to China's whole complete self-strengthening and as a key to the Chinese no longer suffering the humiliations, individual or national, that they had experienced at the hand of foreigners by then for over 60 years. In her study of Liang Qichao's Australian sojourn, Davies speculates, for Liang, the founding of the Australian Commonwealth would have been an event of significance since it inaugurated a political unity made up of six previously separate colonies turned into one single country. And it provided the basis for the effective implementation of uniform legislation. One is tempted, Gloria writes, to draw links between Liang's positive experience of the Commonwealth's formation in Australia from his privileged vantage point, of course, as a distinguished guest of the colonial government in New South Wales, and the nationalist views, values and rights that he later espoused in a magazine that he founded only months later. That magazine was called the New Citizen Journal, Xin Min Bao, 
which started publication in Tokyo eight months after Liang left Australia in May 1901. In that magazine, New Citizen Journal, Liang Qichao published in 1902 a very famous piece of writing called On New Historiography, Xin Shixie. In that long essay, he declared that history was the most vital discipline of all knowledge. It is the mirror that reflects the nation. It is also the source of all patriotism. There is no time here to go to, to recount the ways that historical debate and discussions contributed to, to the transformation of the Qing Empire, first into a modern republican nation-state in the 1910s and 20s, and then eventually into a socialist people's republic. Nor is there time to discuss the crucial importance of imperialism and war, in particular the Japanese war, in the creation of China today, and the long continuing reverberations that that war has to this moment. For indeed, many elements of the post-4th of June 1989 Guoqing education campaign bear an uncanny resemblance to the wartime history education campaign that was launched by the Nationalist or KMT Party Education Ministry at a thing called the Qingwuguan Conference of 1941. It must suffice to say that after Ye Jianning's 1979 call for China to construct spiritual as well as material civilization, constant efforts have been made by the Chinese party state to codify and narrate the elements, ideas, personalities and forces that have led to China's present. This is hardly unique to China. For years we ourselves have seen governments or cultural authorities elected or self-appointed energetically engaged in defending or articulating cultural nationhood and boundaries. This search for national selfhood may be relatively benign in the eyes of some, but attempts to codify and delimit the national essence of a territory, a people, or a linguistic realm is invariably fraught not only with difficulties but also dangers. For to define what culture is, to define the essence of what is in fact a constant flux, something that is a co-creation of numerous individuals, groups or collectives, can be a deadening and worrying activity. Stories and accounts of bloodshed and loss, warfare and adversity, the forging of national identity in the blood of martyrs and common are all common, common elements in the cultural repertoire of many modern nation-states. On the anniversary of the disastrous Gallipoli landing on the 25th of April this year, just last week, speaking at the dawn service in Turkey, the Prime Minister, Julie Gillard, remarked that Anzac Day has organically grown into something of significance for all Australians. A Corporal Robert Smith awarded the Victoria Cross in Afghanistan and a soldier who, has four relatives, who had four relatives at Gallipoli in 1915 said that Gallipoli is, I quote, about the founding of our Australian values and our Aussie spirit. Julia Gillard went one step further when she told us that Gallipoli was even more significant for Australia than the creation of an independent nation at the time of Federation in 1901. Dare say the famous polemicist Liang Qichao, who I've mentioned, a man appalled by the havoc of World War I and the moral bankruptcy that it signified for the West, may well have chosen to take on Ms. Gillard, although that would be the last thing that she needs right now. A feisty, famous, quarrelsome Chinese thinker taking her to task and giving her a history lesson. China and Australia are by no means alone in this recent obsession with codifying what it is or not to be ourselves. 
You might recall that Justice Hu Jintao was outlining his eight worthies and eight shames, Ba Rong Ba Chi movement in Beijing in 2006. Our then Prime Minister, Mr. John Howard, or the Honourable John Howard, along with his Minister of Education, Brendan Nelson, were concocting a set of not eight, but nine values for Australian schooling. And to added to the poster that they produced for that, they put up Simpson and his donkey from Gallipoli. The slogan of the Howard campaign for the nine values was character is destiny. Many other polities faced with real and perceived threats in this age of heightened nation-statism are doing the same. What is particular is not the actual content of the values but the political will to undermine the civic and the civil to cavil and create what political power holders regard as being acceptable norms and standards for society as a whole in consultation mostly with themselves. This is a process that has unfolded at the other end of economic reforms that have seen the rapid privatisation or one could argue the reprivatisation of social life and community. Shortly after the inauguration of the new socialist state of the People's Republic of China on the 1st of October 1949, the literary critic and poet Hu Feng wrote a paean to the new state and to its leader. It was entitled portentously, Time Starts Now. And I'll quote just a couple of lines from it. In the great circular auditorium, it is like a globe floating in the universe. All around it, countless red flags dance and flutter in joy, it is as though they are singing, dancing redder still and more brightly like jumping flames. They light up the 30,000 fighting hearts near them. They have been washed by the storm, blown by the wild winds, fluttering with joy, redder ever still. The writer Hu Feng was not unique in celebrating the rebooting of time. A year one, he thought of it. Just two decades earlier, 1929, the original socialist state of the Soviet Union, had ushered in what was then hailed as its own cultural revolution. That was the original, that's where China got its term from, the Soviet Union. It was a revolution within a revolution. And Stalin said that it would see the proletarianization of culture, a process that would propel the country to a post-bourgeois cultural system, which would instill in the populace a truly socialist consciousness and way of life. Husha's poem, Time Starts Now, published in November 1949, recalled Stalin's declaration at the advent of the Soviet Union's Cultural Revolution in 1929. And Stalin had said that that was a great breakthrough, a Bolshoi perilom, that represented a total break in time. In China, the split in time between the old and the new was as stark as it would be relentless. Meredith, could you get ready for video two? The old China, Jiu Zhongguo, also known as the old society, Jiu Shehui, was one in which the peoples of China, and it was the territory of the former Qing dynasty, remember, had been crushed under the oppressive weight of what Mao Zedong had called the three mountains, Sanzuo Dashan, of imperialism, feudalism, and bureaucratic capitalism. Yes. This is a little clip from... Bai 
，天是黑沉沉的天。东方红使我们就是。The East is red showed young kids like us why there had been a revolution. The Chinese people had experienced such incredible suffering. The Communist Party was founded under these historical conditions to save the Chinese people. So that's just a little quote from another film I worked on, The Morning Sun. And that's a, a, a quote from The East is Red. In a moment I'll mention it again. One of the most famous accounts of, pre, of um, the Chinese Revolution produced in 1964. Time started anew with the birth of New China, as so it was called Xin Zhongguo in 1949. Created as a result of the liberation when the people of China stood up. It brought to an end what was to be called a century of humiliation that had started with the first opium war in 1840, after which China had fallen prey to first the incursions of imperialism and over time had been reduced to becoming a semi-feudal, semi-colonial society. Certainly, the 1911 Xinhai Revolution had brought an end to two millennia of dynastic feudal rule, but China's benighted state did not thereby fundamentally change. The May 4th movement, of the 1900s marked, 1910s marked the beginning of a new democracy revolution, as it was called by the Communist Party. But it was the founding in 1921 of the party that was truly an epoch-making event. And following 28 years of struggle and under the leadership of Mao Zedong, the new democracy revolution finally celebrated its victory by the establishment on the 1st of October 49, a new China. That's the official account of modern history. The party-led historians of New China, influenced profoundly by earlier debates on the historiographical timescape of the Soviet Union and the stages of social change and revolution that had been formulated in the Soviet Union, now set about creating a periodization and a logic for the onward flow of Chinese history itself. Starting from prehistory, they melded the myths of legendary founders of Chinese civilization with scientific fact. And the progress of history and time was marked by delineating dynastic feudal times, or Gu Daishi, through to late feudal and early capitalist history, Jin Daishi, dated from 1840 to 1911, and then into the modern, the Xian Daishi era, from 1911 to 1949, culminating in what Hu Feng called the moment when time starts, the eternal present of the contemporary period, Dang Daishi, the period we're in now, the eternal present, dated from 1949 onwards. Right, that's the next quote. This is just a, a clip to break up my parole. As I remarked earlier, time was rebooted after this first liberation in 1978 with the second liberation. In China, the story of the reforms was one about how history was being realized, how the struggle for a strong, wealthy and modern country dating back to the Qing era was now possible under the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. Mistakes indeed had been made, lessons had been learned, but China was back on track. In the 1990s, Outside China, and including in Hong Kong and Taiwan, popular characterizations of the mainland readily invoked a grand narrative, one that I mentioned earlier, 
one that told another story, a story about how following the disasters of Maoism, the last bastion of one-party rule in China, would inevitably be undermined by economic reforms and the liberating pressures of technology, social change and global markets. It was a view, popular in particular in the 90s, even now, that presented us with an inexorable logic. Market diversity will result in increased commercialization. The growth and strengthening of new social forces as well as of a general liberalization will in turn engender political, social and cultural pluralism. In China, reasoned and self-reflective analysis among popular writers and academics is all too often stymied, not only by the fiat of publishers, but also by mass sentiment. Perhaps this is why the West, that is Europe-America, often doesn't appear to have much of a chance in China. There's a, the script goes, the United States is the sole surviving global hegemon in a unipolar world. It is the policeman of the planet that is in cahoots with NATO and the European Economic Union. The monolithic power of US Inc. will go to any lengths to impose its will on others, especially those who dare challenge its intention, international droit de seigneur. In the name of national security, it suckers a commercial empire that even in decline furthers the imperial domination pursued by its multinational companies and regional minions. This is part of what I've called elsewhere a conflict of caricatures, be it found in China or the US, Asia or Europe-America. It infiltrates and mediates the mainstream and streamlined China story at every turn. The storyline that all too often has China, not to mention the US, in its grip is one of Manichaean simplicity. The communist apparatus of China, the communist apparatus of China is readily cast as being hidebound, out of touch, in decay, incapable of adjusting to the fast pace of economic change or the unsettling and pluralistic realities of its own society. How can the creaky Marxism, Leninism and the early modernism cope with the frenetic pastiche of the postmodern age? China on the verge. It's a conceit that feeds off narratives determined by the Brezhnev-era Soviet Union, a country of permanent political and economic stagnation that was the yesterday of Russia's today. In this view of the Far East, the notion of an unchanged and challenged autocracy that is conflates neatly with abiding mythologies about oriental despotism, eternal Cathay, and political chinoiserie. For China, no matter how one makes concessions to its rapid transformation, complex social realities, and restive economy, it still is a country caught up in over two centuries of stereotypes. If 1989 saw one split in the understanding of China and its trajectory since the inauguration of the 1978 reforms, a second split occurred in 1999, now much forgotten. That year for, in China of great significance when there was an accidental bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade by US and NATO forces, leading to a massive nationalist outpour, outpouring of outrage in China. The third dissonance, I don't have time to go into that, but the third dissonance came nearly a decade later. There's one in 89, one in 99, and the third one is in 2008, on the eve of the Beijing Olympics. And the year leading up to the August 2008 Olympics, widespread hopes were expressed internationally that with the global spotlight focused on China in an unprecedented fashion, and given the Olympics would be a celebration of that country's coming out party, surely it was inevitable, people argued, that we would witness a period of greater openness in China, increased freedom, and an expression of the best that the Chinese system had to offer. 
Such hopeful views brought to mind the optimism regarding the potential for openness and change in China that had been abroad in the late 1980s. And indeed, there was openness and change, but not quite in the way that people had speculated or expected. Again, these views were underpinned by a near axiomatic belief that great economic liberalization and market freedom would invariably enhance political and personal freedoms in a way that would lead to basic changes to China's authoritarian system. If history wasn't bunk, at least would be shoved aside by the invisible hand of the market. The murderous events in Tibetan China in March and April 2008 dashed those hopes for many. Protests and then violence first in Lhasa, then throughout parts of the People's Republic with large Tibetan populations, threatened to become the main focus for China's Olympic year. For the international community, human rights in China are once again a major concern, and for the third time in 20 years, an us-versus-them clash in reporting and understanding contemporary China erupted. An interesting chapter was added to the story of Australia's involvement with China shortly after the suppression of the Tibetan riots. You may recall that in April 2008, on his first formal visit to the People's Republic, our then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd caused something of a stir when, in addressing a Peking University audience, he voiced concerns about China's human rights record and the situation in Tibet. Although his speech was predominantly concerned with the numerous positive dimensions of the bilateral relationship, Rudd was the first foreign leader to address an audience in Chinese and to pointedly, even if politely, dare to disagree with official China over a matter of internal politics and international concern. Ever the diplomat, Rudd couched his comments in terms of trying to be what he called a zhengyou to China. Using this ancient term, he said his comments were part of an effort to be, and I quote, a partner who sees beyond immediate benefit to the broader and firm basis for continuing profound and sincere friendship. International protests during the Olympic torch relay shortly thereafter marked what some commentators in China called the April 19th movement, one that unlike the May 4th movement of 1919 was emblematic of a new assertive China, a China that was present on the world stage and demanded to be heard on equal footing. Some Chinese writers hailed in particular the anti-CNN stance of protesters who cast the US-based broadcaster CNN as the symbol of international Western media bias and neo-colonial attempts to distort Chinese realities for their own and their countries and their companies' neo-colonial ends. The noted leftist nationalist writer Gan Yang in particular declared that the outpouring of the Chinese people of the world on the 19th of April 2008 told CNN and the like, that I do not believe your reports anymore. In such a strained environment, there was little room at all for anything to do with Zhengyou. Despite the hopes <clears throat> and the fears surrounding the 29th Olympiad in Beijing, the games were indeed staged with great success, and they opened with a song and dance extravaganza on the 8th of August to great acclaim. It was the third such production. It was told the story of China, one that spoke of ancient and great glories, and spoke of a hopeful future. It elided the whole history of the People's Republic of China, notably, 1950s, 60s, and 70s. It was the third of such productions, the first being the 1964 East is Red, Dong Fang Hong, before the Cultural Revolution, um, the, second, uh, the second being um, famously the Zhongguo Gomingjigur, 
of 1984, um, Ode to the Revolution, and more recently there's been the uh, Path to Revival, 2009 um, celebration of the party's history. It was just after that opening ceremony on the 8th of August 2008 that I was invited by um, Kevin Rudd, it was on the 9th of August, to join him in conversation with a number of Chinese officials and, and individuals. They included a leading propagandist, in fact the head of the central television network, um, who emphasised how the events of 2008 had demonstrated how important it was now for China to tell more efficaciously what he called Zhongguo de Guoshi the China story. As is so often the case with such encounters, the party bureaucrat was interested in using the foreign to serve China, a term taken from Anne-Marie Anne Brady's work on that very particular subject. Indeed, he enjoined us all to be, using the tired language of um, friendship diplomacy, he enjoined us all to be a bridge, to act as a bridge between China and the world. Having spent my professional career as a historian attempting to understand, translate and relate Chinese stories and not just a monolithic China story, I remarked that it was the plurality of those stories, be they in the People's Republic or globally, that perhaps formed the real and natural bridge in understanding. But the creation of a national narrative for China is no recent invention of the Communist Party. Telling national stories, as I've said, has been part of the creation of nation-states in Europe, Asia and elsewhere since the 19th century and many history projects have been devised as part of or at least under the umbrella of creating narratives for political purposes. The China story, Zhongguo de Guoshi, has in recent years become part of the official narrative of the Chinese party state, part of what Anne-Marie Brady has called China's propaganda state. It is important to understand the officially engineered Chinese worldview just as we need to be mindful of how the guided Chinese media from print to electronic and how educational practice have created what I have elsewhere called China's flat earth. As people engaged intellectually with China, we particularly need to understand both the official discourse and its historical and ideological underpinnings. But to get a grip on larger Chinese realities, possibilities, uncertainties, and to gain insights into how the past and the present will sculpt the future, it's necessary to go well beyond simply developing an ability to grasp what the party tells us. In approaching the China story today, our role as scholars and educators is complex. It behoves us to bring an empathetic understanding to the task. That is, we need to be alert, naturally, to a scholastic pursuit for facts and contextualization, as well as being sensitive to understanding how the very often raw emotions generated by history and the uses of history today function in creating perceptions and responses in current affairs. We are also aware of the nature of our own stories, individual, scholastic, social and national. For our engagement with the China story is underpinned and refers constantly back to all of these. As academics, we have a different perspective or range of perspectives from more narrow-bore pragmatists or focused group-driven politicians or even effective business people and judicious diplomats. As I've remarked elsewhere, my own personal view of our work is one that is derived, driven by a humanistic thought. One to quote the now rather slightly notorious this week or two, Clive James. It's hunger, it's the humanistic thought which has a hunger, a scope and a vitality, an inner light, 
an inner light produced by all the aspects of life that illuminate one another in a honeycomb of understanding. And it is in the environment of the university, universities like Sydney University and my own ANU, where contending ideas are expressed, discussed and debated that properly provides a free forum in which received beliefs and attitudes are subjected to rational analysis and discussion. Our relationships with our colleagues, with students and with the various intellectual traditions of which we are custodians and to which we contribute are in their essence often that of a zhengyou. We expect to be challenged. It is integral to learning and to the cultivation of the engaged scholastic mind. Following the establishment of our own Australian Centre on the World in 2010, we began preparing a way to account for the China story. Later this year, we plan to launch an internet-based initiative as part of an effort to engage with the China story in a practical way, to reflect on discussions of China's guoqing and various aspects of that country's realities. We hope that our version of the China story will provide an easy, easily accessible source for researchers, students, journalists, diplomats, business people and the interested public to the key words and concepts that guide and define China today. In its initial stage, the China Story, which is a large integrative website, a web presence, will consist of three parts. The first part is an annual China Story yearbook. The first volume in this series is called Red Rising, Red Eclipse, for reasons you may well appreciate. It's a 70,000-word book that we will launch in August this year that covers aspects of China's international relations, economy, urban change, thought and culture, internet and politics from roughly 2009 to the present. Written by members and affiliates of our centre, it also contains information boxes that feature keywords, incidents, ideas and policies that have featured in Chinese life and the media recently. We have to update Chen Guangcheng quite quickly. But we'll wait till we see what happens to him. In the first instance, our yearbook will be a downloadable PDF text. It's not going to be published. It'll be available to everybody for free. It'll also be available as an e-book, um, I hope an iPad app, a print-on-demand volume, and also each of the chapters will be available as downloadable essays. The second part of the China Story site is a lexicon of the China Story. We will take, or we are taking, a number of key terms or expressions that are germane to the public and media discussion of contemporary China, or issues that are generally a source of contention between China's official media and the focus of international debate, discussion, media representation and scholastic research. In the first instance, these terms will include such things as human rights, workers' rights, Xinjiang, Tiananmen Square, Falun Gong, Confucianism, Taiwan, propaganda, the South China Sea and the renminbi. Each section will provide a simple chronology of relevant dates and incidents where appropriate. So you can see how these ideas, terms or expressions or, or clusters of meanings have evolved or be seen over time. They're not too long. Each section is about four to 5,000 words and broken up into handy, usable, bite-sized bits. There'll be a list of relevant people, figures and so on and so forth provided with outlined biographical data. And the main text of each section like on, I think, of Xinjiang. Xinjiang, we've, we've finished. It offers a simple overview of the term or its issue. It then offers the official Chinese government account of what is Xinjiang, what has happened in Xinjiang since the Qing dynasty, and what is described in China as being there. And the Chinese have a very particular series of adjectives that describe an appropriate de depiction of any event, person, historical issue, or territorial issue in China. And they talk about 
their representation as being objective, accurate, and above all, scientific. My understanding of is based on the work of Michael Schoenhaus, who wrote a wonderful book called um, Doing Things with Chinese Words in, uh, words with Ch- in Chinese Politics. And he observed, I'll just have to quote him because it's such a great line. He says, the use of scientific criteria is somewhat misleading in the sense that what is being judged is not the scientific verifiability or truthfulness of a formulation, but rather its political utility. A formulation used to produce certain effects upon feelings, thoughts or actions of a target audience is regarded as scientific only if that effect is indeed achieved. That is Kirchner. Anyway, so there will be the official Chinese account. Then there will be the internal dissenting Chinese. It says internal dissenting views of Xinjiang, what should happen with local um, Uyghur policy and so on and so forth. And we outline those. Um, there will be then an account of the mainstream international dissenting view about what is really happening in the Uyghur world and in Xinjiang. An overview of international media representations of Xinjiang issues over the last number of years, primarily using international English language media. Then an outline of the state of academic discussion of the issues to do with the topic in question, whether it's Taiwan or Xinjiang or human rights. And then, where relevant, a background to the whole scholastic field. How did the field develop? How did it come about? And what are, in each case, the basic resources and references online and other that interested readers or users of this site will want to pursue? As I said, that is very much being designed at the moment. The editorial board of this site, it's sort of of like a China story wiki, except not quite the same as wiki because it's controlled by an editorial board that presently consists of the management group of our centre, which, if you know our centre, consists of half ANU and half non-ANU people, China scholars, and we will over time expand this and the lexicon and invite contributions, additions and corrections. We probably won't have a comment, comment section because of what will happen, but we'll see. The third part of this China story site is called the, CI, the China in the World Dunway Chinese Media Archive. If you're familiar with China Heritage Quarterly, a little journal that I produce online, we've already published sections of this archive. This archive was begun to be developed in um, June 2010. Um, it dates back to 2009. It's done in collaboration with the Beijing-based Dunway media site um, run by Jeremy Goldcorn and a group of four colleagues in Beijing and we have been collecting material and we have a large intranet site that now has many thousands of entries long um, that divides material up mostly Chinese mainland Hong Kong Taiwan internet related material sometimes English language material that's um, based on keywords and research themes that our, that our centre is pursuing. And as each yearbook is produced, we will provide all of the research background material that has informed the yearbook for others to gain access to. All the material that we have been collecting and collating with um, Dunway in Beijing has been copied and reproduced and is safe on a server outside China. So it's not being deleted as I speak, which is what usually happens. Um, so that, it's a, as I said, the whole site is basically created as being um, a public accessible public tool for education, the interested, both general and specialist audiences, and we hope over time to develop into something more meaty. And in conclusion, shortly after Kevin Rudd had the temerity to speak of a relationship with China built not on simple friendship, but rather on the basis of being a Zhengyou, 
I observed that the most famous Zhengyou in Chinese history was a man by the name of Wei Zheng, a friend and critic of the Tang Dynasty Emperor Taizong in the 7th century. Wei told the ruler that if you listen to wise counsel, all is brightness. If, however, you give in to bias, darkness falls. When Wei Zheng died some years later, the emperor bitterly mourned his passing. He offered this tribute. One looks at a reflection in a mirror to see if one's dress is in order. One studies history to understand the changing fortunes of time. And one seeks wise counsel to avoid mistakes. Wei Zheng has died and I have lost my mirror. To have a Zhengyou is to be fortunate indeed. The metaphor is used by Chinese leaders, that of having a, a mirror, the mirror of history, is used constantly, as the Chinese media does use it as well. One can only hope that when they look in that mirror, they do not also do so with eyes wide shut. When writing about the need for a new practice of history in China, 110 years ago, the thinker that I've mentioned so many times in this talk, Liang Qichao, also referred to mirrors. He said, what is history? It is that which records both the subjects and objects of the continuous activities of human society. It assesses their general achievement, it seeks the relationship of causality therein, and serves as an auxiliary mirror for the general public in modern times. That which specializes in narrating the activities of ancient Chinese to provide the modern Chinese nation with an auxiliary mirror, that is called Chinese history. Our China Story Project aims at providing a series of such mirrors that reflect not only what the Chinese party state hopes to see when it gazes into the mirror of its carefully constructed history, but also through the various refractions to provide those who see Chinese history as part of a broader global enterprise of humanity, to see the various types of Chinese history and stories and accounts that flourish in China today, and to allow us to gain access to the multiple dimensions that offer a nuanced, informed and complex understanding of China's very telling stories. Thank you. He thinks he's finished, but he's not. So um, the floor is yours for questions. I have a, Ping has a um, microphone. Who would like to ask a question? Young man here. Turn off the air conditioning, can't hear. Party central controls it. Um, how would you characterize the ideological competition between America and China in relation to military and economic, economic spheres? Military, the ideological competition. Depends what you mean by ideology, I 
suppose. Uh, the competition is, is, is considerable. As I said, the Chinese, the Chinese official view is still that America and its allies are still pursuing a basically neo-colonial approach to China and, in fact, to the rest of the world. Um, those of us, there might be those of us who, who don't entirely disagree with that particular view, depending on how you see um, American mercantile government activity. The Chinese government, again, there's much debate within um, the international community among scholars and others about what China's, so-called China's intentions are. China being, whether it's bits of the PLA or the Chinese government, bits of the Chinese party or the whole Chinese government, what its intentions are um, regionally and globally, um, whether China aims to be a global superpower and what that actually means in real terms. Um, and it's a whole, it's a, a whole other talk. I don't know if I can. Um, I'm, yeah, here I'm very excited over this, um, over the website that you have uh, shared. I think it has potential for education as well. And I'm speaking more specifically high school education, the years, um, years seven to twelve. As, uh, I'm not sure whether you, you guys are aware that there's, a, uh, there's going to be an na uh, Australian a national history curriculum that's uh, going on. And uh, the focus on, on I see the uh, resources being used as, uh, for, because there's a greater emphasis on Asia and on Chinese history. So are there any plans to, to, to invite maybe teachers to, to maybe do some lesson plans to, to, so that they can help students to access the website as well? Thank you. That is, I mean, definitely. I was in. I was asked to, to comment on some of the history modules for the new, for the new national course, and it's very much in our minds. But at the moment, I'm more. I have to concentrate in the next year or so in building the site and working with colleagues in Australia and elsewhere to build up the basic site and then work out how to collaborate with, in particular, with people in high schools and universities, and how to how to serve the public. Again, we're a, we're one of those institutions. Our, our centre was funded with. You know, a generous amount of public money and I want to make sure that as much of what we do is available not only to scholars and produce, to produce all the usual what we call so derogatorily as brownie points for our bureaucracy but also to produce information that is usable and accessible by the general public and by educators throughout the country. So of course we're very, very interested but it'll take, we have to first get it up and running and that's, I'm trying very hard to get the basic site up by August so it'll be accessible and then over time working with people to see how we can modify and modulate it as you suggest. So thank you. Hi. The, um, the story of Deng Xiaoping after the Cultural Revolution is that he healed the country and opened it up, yet the Tiananmen Square massacre occurred under his leadership. Would you comment on that dichotomy? Well, first I'd say that I, I, don't, I don't agree with the expression Tiananmen Square Massacre since I spent five years working on a film and we couldn't find any proof that there, people actually died in Tiananmen Square. But that's a whole issue for the website because, uh, sorry, just to be boring, Tiananmen Square, until June the 4th, Tiananmen Square was indeed defined as being the whole area between the Great Hall of the People and the History Museum and Zhongyangmen in the south of Tiananmen and the two arms of, of um, uh, Chang'anjie, east and west, Chang'anjie, all of it, which could contain one million people, was used to be Tiananmen Square. On the night of June 3rd, 4th, the government decided, well, had been planning, they redefined the square as being the small area 
and meet with, around, around the, there's a road around it, the, road, the internal road within Tiananmen Square itself. But Deng Xiaoping is one of the extraordinary figures. I think Ezra Vogel has a recent, you know, very, um, among some, a controversial book um, about Deng Xiaoping, trying to work out um, the role that Deng Xiaoping played. I should really defer to the person who's written in this room, written most about Deng Xiaoping, which is David Goodman, who is a, a noted expert. Pat, David, would you like to say a word? No, you wouldn't. Damn. Perhaps you'd like to have a private chat with David afterwards because you do have a, you have a good uh, a view on that subject. And he's far more, far more, I'm not going to embarrass myself. I make myself a fool of myself here talking about the subject. Good. Anyway. <laughs> so. um, hi, um, I'm, I'm the uh, Sydney Young Chinese Weekly um, a journalist. So, um, sorry, sorry? I'm Sydney Young Chinese journalist. Um, it's a former magazine. So um, my question is, um, now it's very close uh, to the f uh, 5th of May movement anniversary. Uh, so um, I believe back to that time, um, China is actually a much open society. Um, the young people are actually very patriotic and have in, uh, independent thought. And uh, I also remember a quote from Crozet says, all history are on our contemporary history. So uh, what do you think now Chinese, uh, contemporary Chinese people should view their history? Oh dear, I can't. Um, one of the interesting things about, about the post-1978 changes in China was that a, a, a large number of um, active Chinese intellectuals did say that the 1980s in particular was like a new May 4th movement. They called it the New Enlightenment, Xin Qimong, which is based on the original Enlightenment or Renaissance movement of the, of the May 4th era, which is roughly from 1915 to 1925-27. Um, I know China, the history in China today is one of, you know, like every other society, China perhaps a little bit different in that um, so much of um, history is fed through into the public via costume dramas and, and through historical anecdotes and various ways of popularizing history and historical thought. And there is a certain kung fu movies and popular culture contain elements of history that's both distorting yet not distorting. I, I have no lessons for Chinese people on how they should read or not read history. I, I worry very much about how, how history is read and taught and thought about in this country. Um, again, my main interest in pursuing this project that I've just outlined is at least providing the different ways to understand the historical complexities of contemporary China and to give due acknowledgement to the, even though we often find the party state, the official Chinese version of history, uh, corrupt, distorting, elided, um, dishonest, nonetheless it is a well thought out history. Many national histories are full of corruptions and dishonesties, and it behoves us to really make, make sure we understand how that history is presented, why it's talked about and spoken of in such terms, and what that means, because otherwise we're always dealing with a China that is half understood or misunderstood or misrepresented. At least we'll, uh, we'd, we'd like to um, have a better understanding of how that official history and the various dissenting and other views represent this complex reality that is China, something that, is, as you know, is too simple, too, uh, it's too impossible for us to encapsulate. Sorry, not really an answer. Jeremy, thank you for the talk. I really appreciated your point about uh, all countries telling stories about themselves, but also looking outwards to tell stories about the rest of the world. And as you said, this sometimes 
has descended into what you call a, a conflict of caricatures. But I wonder, when you look at China, do you see uh, a process of transformation in storytelling where the focus is becoming less internal and more external as China's influence grows? Well, when, again, David Desai encounters this. One of the interesting things is given that China's international engagement, given, say, for example, China's presence in Africa, I'm intrigued that there's not a large literature um, whether it's prose or whether it's or there's film or TV shows of, about China in Africa, about you know, stories, because you know, Americans, as they became more in, engaged in the, in the international world, made more and more stories, not only fictional and historical, but they made more and more stories about themselves being elsewhere, as did the French, as did the British, as did the Russians, as did the Germans, as, as have the Australians. In China, there have been a few very famous shows, like uh, A Beijing Man in, in New York, um, a woman in Manhattan and a few other these major events, but there's not been as much um, public culture that touches on China's global presence, which is fascinating. There's no you know, cute little TV series set in Fiji, for example, which, although China is very important in Fiji, or something about Madagascar or you know, Liberia. But anyway, it is, it, is, it is fascinating that there's a lot of... There is a very particular series of issues to be discussed there and I'm very interested. I'm sure that there are scholars who are working on why, how China does and doesn't represent uh, the rest of the world in its, its mass literature and in, and in history writing. There's a lot of, it's also interesting in the fact that China has, like the Soviet Union, but also long before the Soviet Union was created, one of the fascinations of Liang Qichao and many other historians in China was this ob complete obsession with world history. And Chinese colleagues and friends have a knowledge of world history and world events that uh, you know, makes me feel completely ignorant all the time. So there's that level of awareness and engagement and, and detailed understanding that um, is quite extraordinary. But there's not, I haven't yet seen, I don't know if you've seen David, a couple of things. Doctors, obviously. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 And, that, and that is also one of the problems is this concept the state has to constantly modulate and interfere with I mean there, there would be interesting public discussion and debate because that's you know, I don't know if you deal with contemporary mainland China there's so much lively engaging intelligent debate and discussion that sometimes what is represented even in the mainstream media in China and internationally is such a distortion of reality compared to what actually happens how people really talk and think Hey, thank you, Pro Professor Barmi. And um, it's really in a surprise for me to see you again here after <laughs> we, we met in two years ago in the Australia-China Youth Dialogue. And I have three questions tonight. The first, I'm sorry. First one, first one is about, um, we know that China is a one-party country, but inside the co Communist Party, there were three cliques. As there are three cliques. It's like a Taizidang, princely clique and a Shanghai clique, oh. and um, a Pai. You're more confident yeah, yeah. than I are in identifying oh, three right. cliques, but I'll take your word for it. Okay. Sorry. Um, so it's like um, I want to uh, ask the first question is um, what's your impression and, and what kind of research do you have on the different decision making of the three cliques? Um, <laughs> no? A huge topic. 
Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So the secondly, it's like now you mentioned Chen Guangcheng just now. Yeah. So I wanna do you think Chen Guangcheng's successful leave from China uh, re, re, has something related to the recent collapse of Bo Xilai and uh, Zhou Yongkang? Wow. All three unanswerable <laughs> questions. One is, I'm not, I'm not very good on Chinese factional politics, since I'm one of those people who believes that factions tend to appear after they've been denounced. I'm one of those types of characters, that they've been made up to justify things that have happened. So I'm not too... I've always had trouble with the Tuanpai, the whole you know, Youth League faction, and the whole Taizadang faction, because I know lots of people... I, I, I know a number of people who are Taizadang, that children have found, but, and they don't get on at all, and they're not part of a coherent group of people. Um, so I can't really comment on, on Chinese factional politics. I just don't see it. I don't, uh, David, again, you have understandings of these things. Yeah, did Fred, Fred T was one of the world experts on Chinese politics is sitting in the back. Perhaps you could ask. I don't, I don't, I don't. But perhaps you, in private you could ask, have, have a chat with Fred. You don't have to. But... Um, who knows with Chen Guangcheng? He might be, there are already articles in the Daily Telegraph in England just a few hours ago that said that he's already been given um, asylum and will be given asylum in America. He's protect, at the moment under protection that his wife and daughter will join him and he'll leave China. I have no idea. It's impossible to um, speak. My third question yeah. is, um, what is your, um, what do you Ooh. think is Chinese identity as a researcher? What do I think is Chinese identity? You're going to have to work on your questions, otherwise you'll never have anyone answering them. They're too complicated. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry to be difficult, but impossible to answer. Hi. Just a quick question. Do you think the pending leadership change, which will happen when Hu Jintao stands down and when Jiao Bao stands down, will lead to a potential change in direction? in terms of China's presence on the world? Again, impossible to spare. I do know that there, uh, that there has been a lot of debate just about that among very high-level think tanks and groups in China. Inevitably, because people... I mean, doing these changes and shifts in power in any, any country, you have thinking people, whether they're people with money, big corporations or think tank groups or factional groups or individuals, are trying to have a say in how things should go. So there, and China is a place full of both formal and informal think tanks. There are government-founded think tanks, the PLA, the Public Security Ministry, the State Security Ministry, all have very, very um, well-funded and very smart think tank groups who are offering advice constantly, not only on immediate policy, but also long-term vision. Um, and then there are private think tanks. A few of my friends made lots of money and they fund private think tanks that try and come up with just what you're saying, try and come up with scenarios for the future. Then there's governmental think tanks. There's one that I, one, my favourite story about one particular think tank group that I know offered advice in 2009 to Hu Jintao and the Politburo about a scenario for the future. Because I know that this actually did happen. Nothing came of it, but it's an example. I know that actually this was a proposal. And this is one group, I won't name the ministry, but the ministry think tank offered an advice to the Politburo. They get them all the time. I don't know how they manage. They have, let's say they have a secretariat full of people you know, trashing or, or, um, 
or throwing away all the proposals they must get. But this one went up for serious discussion. It was, what are we going to say about China on the 60th anniversary of the People's Republic of China? We should come up with a, a vision for the future. It should be Hu Jintao's legacy because he's in power for a couple more years. This should be your statement about where we're going. And as you, if you've been following Chinese politics in the last three or four years, you know that uh, the Premier Wen Jiabao has at crucial moments come out and made all these mutterings about political reform in China. Done nothing about it but muttered and you know, said wonderful things and seemed so enlightened and wonderful. What he's done, in fact, is whenever there is some possibility of political reform in China, people have to recognize his role in helping encourage it, even though he didn't actually do anything practical. That's my own personal cynical view. The proposal to the Politburo was when Hu Jintao gives his anniversary speech on October the 1st, 2009, he should say that the Communist Party has a forward plan. We re- and you know, thinking, the thinking behind it is that sooner or later things are going to go wrong. We won't be able to maintain the type of one-party state we have at the moment. We'll have to modulate our mechanisms in some way through faux democracy, through this day, or whatever mechanisms. So we should have a plan to make ourselves look good. Hu Jintao should announce that we have a plan for 2021 and 2049. By 2000, he will declare on two, in 2009, we have already achieved the aims of the new reform movement as they were articulated in 1978-79. In this 30-year period, we have achieved a moderately prosperous society. Our next aim, by 2021, will to found the 100th anniversary, the centenary of the founding of the Communist Party of China, we will aim to achieve a middle-class society that initiates a level of media openness and pluralism and multi-party contestation as promised in the 1940s by the Communist Party. We are just carrying out the new democracy plans that we had all those years ago. And that by the year 2049, the centenary of the founding of the People's Republic of China, uh, the People's Republic of China, the Communist Party will be one, will be the leading, but only one of the major political parties in China. Towards this end, we now will gradually introduce moderate political change. Now, it's a complete blank check. There'd be no, you know, <laughs> there's actually no mechanism, but the suggestion was made, you have to give people some sense of forward movement and possibility, not just this endless repetition of what we have right now. It was discussed, I believe it was discussed seriously, rejected, but nonetheless, they get things like that. So dare say right now, I mean, there will be people in Beijing, in Shanghai and throughout China, Chongqing and so on and so forth, coming up with what are the new formulations that that Xi Jinping, if he becomes the head of the the party and the head of the state, that he should pursue. It won't be scientific development model. It won't be harmonious society. What should the the catchphrases and the theories be? The contestation on that level, I think, is so much more interesting than Bo Xilai because it's those things that will determine the direction for the next number of years. And there'll be, I know there's a lot of, you know, coming up with the right, what's called tifa in Chinese, the right formulation for the way we should think about ourselves. That's the real contest I'm sort of interested in. Hi. Thank you for your talk. I found the the structure of it really enabling, one, the master narrative of the nation, the political narrative, and the possibility of a multiplicity of stories. And I'm interested in the stories the artists tell. Clearly, you have a deep interest in it when you launched the work uh, Seven Intellectuals in Bamboo Forest at the Sherman Gallery. You did that, didn't you? That was Yang Fudong. Yes. 
Yes. Now I showed uh, a piece by Yang Fudong on the internet to my students. I teach uh, cinema studies at University of Sydney and I have half my class as students from mainland China. They had none of them, some from Shanghai, had heard of this artist and that's quite normal. Very few people in Australia would know our leading uh, artist, for instance, Simran Gill, who's representing the, the Venice Biennale uh, this year. So I wonder if you will have a section on your website uh, detailing some of these artists because they do tell stories but language is not their main medium. Linguistics would be just a component of a very rich image that's um, uh, to do with gestures, movements, clothing, fabric that has a deep history in Yang Fudong's work. And I was very taken aback when uh, a guy from Shanghai said, oh, this is very cliched stereotypes. I was so taken aback, I was speechless. And I tried to recover and try to explain um, how stereotypes can be used in order to do things. But if your website was there, it would be <laughs> fabulous for me to educate my Chinese students about their own contemporary artists. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we hope the site will, will have some of that. One of the things we've done that's in tandem entirely with this China Story site is something a little bit, it touches slightly on what you're suggesting, but somewhat different is um, I work with a colleague by the name of Claire Roberts who used to be at the Powerhouse Museum and is now at, um, in Adelaide teaching there but still connected with us. Last year, because we had um, a big public program related to this uh, National Chinese uh, museum's exhibition in Canberra called New Horizons. We organized a one-day workshop in which we brought together all of the major curators and editors and writers who've worked on Australia's engagement with Chinese art since um, the late 1970s. And we're now preparing an archival site to do with that history so that we have first an account of what happened, what, has, what have these artistic engagements been, so that people at least know there is a real history and all the, the, the perspectives from Art Asia Pacific and the Sherman Foundation and so on and so forth. But also over time we'd like to create an archival site for the Chinese artists who've worked in Australia and moved back and forth, those migratory artists. Um, working more on the, China, the whole Chinese art scene is a very ambitious thing and there are, there's a wonderful um, China art archive in Hong Kong that already is sort of doing some of that work. So we won't, we won't be replicating some of the very good work. We'll have links to it, but we won't try and reinvent the wheel. But that's, it's, a, it's a very good independently funded um, web initiative that um, does a lot of archiving of, of Chinese art and art history. So it might be worth looking at. today, I'm afraid uh, we have security um, wanting to get into the building, so I'm awfully sorry. Um, uh, you'll give him your email later, won't you? And then you can have a conversation. Can I thank you all for coming? Can I thank Jeremy for speaking? <laughs> <laughs>